This is the Gonzo Movie Reviews, the Die Hard Specials. I'm Alex Shaw. This is Live Free or Die Hard 4.0. We're back with the last of four Die Hard movie reviews. With me once again is Neil Taylor of Game Burst. Hello, Neil. Hello. And Matthew Ramsey, better known on the DC forums as Matt Harrier. Hello again, Matt. Hi. And this week we're turning our attention to the newest Die Hard film, known in the USA as Live Free or Die Hard, and internationally as Die Hard 4.0. The meaning of both is somewhat nebulous. Live Free or Die Hard is the state motto of New Hampshire and has fuck all to do with Die Hard. 4.0 is a clumsy reference to internet-based terrorism and has fuck all to do with Die Hard. So before Neil and I, who have years of resentment stored up, get our fangs into this thing, we're going to go to Matt, who has only just seen it yesterday for the first time, and find out what a new perspective will make of this movie. Matt, fire away. Well... Right. <laughs> that 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 sound that sound just summed it all up. <laughs> I, I watched it on on Saturday night with uh, I went to my mate's house and watched it with a few beers, and um, it was it was all right. It was reasonably pretty decent, no brainer action flick. Really, There's some some great stunt scenes and some good effects, and uh, just wasn't really very die hard to be honest. It, I kind of felt it would have been better having no references to Die Hard instead of having Bruce Willis having Dwayne the Rock Johnson or something and just making it a proper summer blockbuster mm. which would then justify the ridiculous I might have liked it more stunts. if it had been yeah well, I think it would have worked better because they wouldn't have had to shoehorn in all the, the little Die Hard references that they, they had mm. to which they did in. yeah yeah you know it's just I don't know it just seemed like they took a picture script and went oh that will do we'll make that Die Hard 4 right yeah. let's just slap in some bits and bobs we need a we need a family member in peril we'll stick that in there and we need a one liner we'll chuck that in there and oh you know I don't know it just seemed a bit uh, you know oh we haven't got an elevator let's put an elevator in there somewhere and have a fight in it and that can go in oh we'll jam it in there and then there we go we'll release it as a film it just seemed a bit bit choppy really it just could have done with being either more die hard or not at all but yeah, it, was, it was entertaining enough but it wasn't really very die hard do you want to know what I think the biggest crime of this movie is? Yeah, go for it. What is one of the greatest things about the first Die Hard movie? Uh, it's tense, I'd say. Well, well the well, fact I'm, is, yeah. uh, I'll give you this. As we talked about when we talked about Die Hard 1, mm-hmm. it, it, it broke the mould of the traditional action movies to that point where your hero was invulnerable. Never got mm-hmm. hurt, got nothing. You know, we see that John McClane pretty much gets fucked up in the first movie. Yes. Leading to a lot of tension. <laughs> so in a roundabout way yes, yeah, no, but you're right absolutely a, a very human uh, lead character a hero who can get hurt maybe even killed we don't know well that is where the, your tension comes in through the entire movie because you know if he's caught he's dead mm. we get to die hard four point less <laughs> and he's become the 80s action hero because he gets kicked out a window hitting cooling vents on the way down and gets back up yeah, it's, it goes back to films before Die Hard that were daft. The films that Die Hard broke the mold on. So we've got him kicked out a window, but that's that that would piss me off. But then it got worse. <laughs> the fucking plane. Well, he's already surfed on a dump truck. Let's go back. Go to a plane. Just, oh, it's all important to note that he also did hang on. T- like he was running around on top of a wing in Die Hard Two. So it's not a definitely unprecedented scenario for John. It's not unprecedented. That was was a wing of a slowly moving airline. Which wasn't even off the ground. (laughs) Well, we have this bizarre... Is that even a real plane, or is it something they cooked up? It's a real plane. It was was like a... a, What's the word? An F-35. F-35, yeah. It's capable of vertical takeoff. It was in the... like Just beyond prototype stage at that point. I think Starscream turns into one in Transformers. At the oh, movie. Okay. No, it turns in F twenty two. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yep. Sorry, just to see, what does Megatron <laughs> turn into? So, Cybertronian jet. Oh, okay. Well, the biggest geek point. Sorry. <laughs> well done. <laughs> Certainly not a gun, anyway. We'll talk about it another time. I just, no, we just, won't. <laughs> no, we do. We just want to run. But look, anyway. the, the thing is, I've always why I like Don Howard one so much is you feel for this character. He, you feel that 
he could die at any time. He does get hurt. He gets his feet cut to ribbons. Mm-hmm. Yet we hit this one, and he's just... He is the dumb action hero, and that's what it is. It's a dumb action movie, yeah. which is fine, but Die Hard built itself on not being a mm. dumb action movie. It's the thinking man's action movie. Well, exactly. I mean, you said you said earlier that, that uh, in, in the first film he was he was vulnerable. You know, he was getting shot, and it was it was slowing him down. It was affecting him all throughout the film, which, which you know developed the character and sort of motivated what he did and why he did it as he went through. And with this one, he can you know surf on a jet and survive heat-seeking rockets, mm. uh, high-explosive 25-millimetre, thousands of high-explosive 25-millimetre rounds from a fighter jet. And you can then jump onto the back of it, stand on the engine, and then jump off, and then get up and walk away, which is just fucking ridiculous. Yeah. It's just a complete change from the previous one, where he got completely fucked up by walking over broken glass. Yeah, yeah it's the opposite. Uh, everyone always mentions that jet and the surfing on that as a, as an example of what Die Hard didn't do before and now is suddenly doing. John McTiernan is gone, replaced by artless, talentless director of Underworld, Len Wiesman. Michael Kamen is gone, in favour of Marco Beltrami, who, I don't know if you guys noticed, but delivers a score precisely one-eighth as powerful and urgent as the original. It's riffing on themes and giving the suggestion of tension, rather than an edge-of-the-seat thrill ride that tugs at the spinal cord. It kind of went... This is how memorable the score is to me. I don't care. Yeah, it's just sort of there in the background going, hey, stuff's going on. I mean, yeah, that, that is actually a really good description of the, of the score for this movie. Uh, hey, stuff's going on. I mean, on. It's, it's not terrible. The, the film itself is not terrible. It's just so much kind of... Uh, what? What? Holly's gone. Replaced by Lucy McLean, played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead, a sexy girl with not much to do. Al is gone, replaced by Cliff Curtis's erstwhile plot narrator, Bowman. The Groobers are gone, replaced by Timothy Oliphant as Gabriel. Oliphant is a skilled actor and can be very charismatic, but his ability here to walk, talk and use the phone whilst asleep is truly noteworthy. It's not just that, he phones this performance. Yeah. Just like blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Have you guys seen a, a series called Justified? No, no. What's it like? He plays the main character in that. It's almost... Um, I want to say it's modern-day Western. He's a U.S. Marshal. Mm-hmm. If you watch him in that, he is freaking fantastic. He is brilliant. He's really watchable. You're like, wow, this guy, car- guy carries a show. You believe him. Mm. In this, it's like, I'm just going to phone this one in. It's, it's just making the money. He's great in Deadwood as well. And he was great in Go. I think the first time I saw him was in Go. And very shortly afterwards, I saw him in Gone in 60 Seconds. I was like, oh, I like Timothy Oliphant. He'll be good. And actually, no, the first time I saw him was in Scream 2. And he was out of his tree at that oh, point as well. Yes, he's brewing in Scream 2. Um, but, uh, yeah, so I saw him in Gone in 60 Seconds. He's just sort of there. And I was like, oh, God, he's a guy who can just phone it in. And it turns out he was. This is really embarrassing for me. I actually like Gone in 60 Seconds. Oh, you I do, don't, don't remember him in it. He, he's like the... Isn't he? Is he in it? I don't yeah, know. But he, he is in it, but he's barely in it. He's, he's a fairly pointless partner for Joe Lindo's character that doesn't need to be there. Yeah. And he's an attempt. Oh, yes. Now you've pointed that out. Yeah. yeah. I, don't, I quite like Gone in 60 Seconds, mainly because of all the cool cars in it and various you know, chases and all the rest. And of horse-faced it. Nick Cage. <laughs> Jason and Cage, um, but you know the uh, Ellen is probably my all-time favourite car, so I'm slightly biased. But yeah, he's very forgettable in, in, in that. He can't you can get rid of him entirely, and it wouldn't make yeah. a damn bit of the film. But in this film, he's just sort of there. He gets a bit angry, but he seems like he's really uptight. He's most similar to to uh, Colonel. I always forget his name, don't I? <laughs> William Sadler, <laughs> Colonel Stewart, as William Sadler, only. I don't know, Stuart seems to be a bit more in control. 
Uh, it's, it's it's weird. He, he's definitely not funny at all. And um, you know, there's, Simon was funny, and Hans was funny. It, there's flashes of there's flashes of, of humour at the end, tiny little bits. Like he's getting bored. Little flashes, and you think if if it just worked a bit harder, maybe he could have been better, mm. good all through the film, but. Too but put him up against uh, Alan Rickman, <laughs> Jeremy Hines. Like, he's not even there. He he could be. A, he could have been a henchman in the first one. He's more like Carl. Actually, yeah, he is more like Carl. He is Carl. I want blood. <laughs> he's Carl if you Carl ran the show. Yeah, that's what it would have been like in the first one, not a film. And Zeus, the first foil for McLean, really, is replaced with Justin Long's character of Matthew, a nerdy, timid, computer hacksaw with some dry delivery and not much else. I mean, he's the, cute, he's nice. The, the only thing I can say about that character is thank God it was him and not Shire. Because you can yeah. easily imagine Shia LaBeouf. Yeah, Shia LaBeouf. I was racking my brains for who I thought would be better, but uh, Topher Grace sprang to mind because th- the problem is that McLean bullies him the whole way through the film. He keeps shoving him and telling him he's a dickhead. You know, shut up, kid, you with your stupid computer stuff and your theories. Uh, I was thinking maybe Topher Grace could give as good as he got, but he's such a clean-cut tool of the system, he could never play a hacker. No one's springing to mind yeah. so you could play him at the minute. Apart I mean, from perhaps maybe if it had been someone... I can't believe I'm going to utter them. Uh, who's the guy from The Social Network? Oh, actually, yeah, Jesse Eisenberg would have been so good. That's because he can act. Yeah, he of Zombieland and Roger Dodger. Yeah, he, he would have been brilliant. I know he was busy filming The Dark Knight at the time and luck at that point, not dead, but Heath Ledger would have been fucking brilliant up against McLean. But no, it was it was just sort of this little wimpy mouse kid. The huge oversight is that rather than being with McLean all the way as it might first appear, you're actually with Matthew. Just trying to keep up with this cold, hard, emotionally distant professional. Matt knows what's going on and McLean knows what to do. And between the two of them, they sort of muddle through it. Then the movie ends. That Yeah. And it doesn't even end with a bang, it ends with a whimper. It does. And, and, second biggest crime in this movie. Oh yeah, it's coming. Covering up the catchphrase with the gunshot. (laughs) Didn't even work in in this country, we'll get to that in a bit, but the BBFC were having none of it. (laughs) It is so long and boring, with so much going on and nothing much actually happening. My main issue with 4.0 has always been that it barely has anything in common with the previous three, and what it does seems to be forced in or added at the last minute, as if they're retconning a brain-dead Bruce Willis action flick made for teenagers and change the name of the hero to John McClane in order to sell more tickets to an older audience. And that's the other thing that bothers me. So much of this is a series of boxes ticked to satisfy two key demographics, the kids and the parents. For the kids, they fill it with what they perceive young people are turned on by. Red Bull, hacking, computer slang, horrible music, comic book character references, video games, conspiracy theories, and parkour. For adults, they're given us an aged hero baffled by the world of technology and prone to slapping around the cocky kid who becomes his ward. He likes doing things the old-fashioned way, including his music, hence the token good tune in the shape of Fortunate Son by Creedence Clearwater Revival. Which but it's so cold and clinical as it throws buzzwords and motifs up at you as though every member of the audience is in some sort of focus group and being shown flashcards with an accompaniment of, do you like that? How about that? Our tests have shown that kids like Big Explosions, Mountain Dew, and Justin Bieber, while adults like John Wayne, Frank Sinatra, and Werther's Originals. Go. I, I, wa- I want to go into Pet and Corner now. Bieber. Go. go. Bieber. <laughs> Justin Bieber. I'm so glad I don't know the correct spelling. I'm so glad I don't know the correct spelling. I work on the radio, it's my only excuse. Bieber. <laughs> it's not a good enough excuse, I'm sorry. You're banished to the corner. You're like, is fat. <laughs> just oh, just don't make me watch Die Hard 4 again. You do, you must. <laughs> Actually, now, here's a good question. Uh, Maggie Q's in this movie. Lovely. She's nice to look at, but has she ever done any decent bit of acting yet? Not really. She's basically just the same in, in every movie I've ever seen her in. Very serious. And that's about it. She's not Michelle Yeoh. No. I mean, she does, she, this is pretty much the same role as she plays in MI3. I mean, to her credit, she doesn't do 24 Eyes. Now, this is something I don't think I've mentioned before. 24 Eyes is when someone is villainous and 
show it with their eyes. In 24, you can always tell when someone's got, when someone's actually a villain and is actually going to turn around and kill someone you, you know, have previously cared about because they sort of get this shifty eye look on their face. You're like, oh my god, he's evil! Maggie Q doesn't do that. She acts like a professional the whole way through this as though, you know, she's totally justified in what she's doing. I think it, it certainly wasn't Joss Whedon who said it first, but to paraphrase him, everybody thinks they're righteous. There should be no such thing as a villain when you're writing something. And no one should go, I am so incredibly evil. And, you know, I just remember there's another thing this film did that pissed me off. But it, not particularly the film, it was the, uh, I'm going to put the air quotes here, actor that did it. Because uh-huh. he was one of my heroes. Okay. Kevin Smith. Yeah, apparently he sort of helped with the script. Yeah, That's worrying. Well, I don't know, it's, it's not very good. His character makes no sense in that. No. Apart from to be the comical hacker who still lives with his mother. Lives in his mother's basement. I mean, it's like this sort of adults looking down their nose at kids and geeks. Specifically geeks. Geeks get a really fucking bum deal in this. You know, it's, they may as well just, it's like, wasn't there, I mean, geek, the, the film this most reminds me of is Transformers, which came out that same summer. It's got this kind of sort of, yeah, this is what hackers do. I think in, in Transformers, wasn't it the film where that nerdy kid from Road Trip goes, I'm going to need a, a steady supply of hot pockets or something like that. Yes, nerds, that's what they do. They play computers and eat hot pockets. I mean, uh, yes, a lot of us do. <laughs> Some of us podcasts whilst eating hot pockets. I don't know. What's a hot pocket anyway? Not that I care. It's like a toaster pastry, like a, a savoury pop tart. Fine, okay. Somebody send us some hot pockets. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and egos. I want to taste them. Another thing is right. So we we watch a lot of movies. I take it. I think so. Yes. And I take it your brain's probably quite like mine. We go, oh, that's a special effect. Oh, that's CG. Yep. You know, you, no matter how good it is, you can tell. Yep. How the fuck are these people fooled by a model? Congress building. Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, my God, it's blowing up. Do you know what that bit reminded me of? Independence Day? <laughs> sort of. It's the scene from Independence Day used in Austin Powers. Yeah. Yes! Yes! And it's like, oh, my God, they blow up the White House. Actually, that's just a scene from Independence Day, but the real thing will be just like that. <laughs> Good boy. That's what it made me think of. It's like... I can, I can see the greatest, latest movie and they get all raved about the special effects, but because I'm into this, that area of, uh, in other, in my life, I can see special effects really easily. No, no matter how good they are, I tend to see them, so how are these people fooled? It would have been more realistic if it had looked like grainy sort of um, news footage of it, and there'd been people walking about beside and in front of the White House, and the people had all gone, oh shit, when it blew up. If it looked like District 9, I would have gone, yeah, you're not fair dudes, that looks like the sort of thing you'd expect, but it looks like a clean, perfectly staged uh, special effect for a movie, and it is. (laughs) it's, it's, It's yet another example of how um, in this movie, they managed to get by, you know, with going, oh, these guys are so evil, without them actually doing anything that's actually really all that evil. I mean, they murder a lot of blue-collar workers, and they murder a lot of, you know, security guards and policemen. But no, in the, ter- in the words of Mr. White, real people get killed. And so, because it's a PG-13, you know, it's, it's, uh, no one's re- nothing's really at stake. I'll talk about that later, but, uh, yeah. There's a- the, the, the Capitol building blowing up, I mean... As far as I could tell. Why didn't they actually do it? Sorry? Why didn't they actually do it? Well, that would have been a much colder film. But (laughs) as far as I can tell, the only purpose it really serves is to reinforce the fact that the film is set in Washington. Mm. Because it clearly isn't in Washington. It's because there's there's no buildings that tall in Washington. Clearly, I've been to Washington. It looks nothing like it. It starts in Washington and then then goes on to a lot of other different places where they go to the... Indeed. But if you actually look at the building, anyone from Los Angeles would go, oh, it's... Los Angeles, because that's where <laughs> that's where the city is. It, oh, yeah. is Los Angeles. It just looks oh, really. Uh, it was filmed in Los Angeles, yeah. filmed all over the place, but it's definitely not Washington. And as right. far as th- that must be the only reason they put it in, because it's a very pointless thing to do. Yeah, it doesn't really threaten anybody with anything. And as you say, it looks shit. And it just says, oh yes, we are in Washington. Also, it discredits you as well as as villains. People are like, oh, it didn't actually blow up. Well. Mm. It's like you become the boy who cried wolf. Then, like next, you blow up the Washington Monument, and the people go, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." T- call me when something actually blows up, and suddenly people are, are, are not as scared anymore. 
Brilliant. You've just hobbled yourself. (laughs) John is transformed in this movie. In the first three, he was always on the edge of his abilities, almost always either wisecracking down a phone, bickering with the local law enforcement, or staggering wide-eyed, battered and bloody through a dangerous enclosed area to get to his next exploding thing. He never really gets agitated in this. Willis just looks grim or smirky or even sleepy throughout the whole event, securing the knowledge that at the end he's getting a $40 million paycheck, no questions asked. They've done their research, made their calculations, they know what will appeal to the widest audiences, and they're releasing on Independence Day in the US. This thing can't fail. Commercially, it didn't. And even critically, it didn't get nearly the mauling it deserves from the perspective of what it's done to this film series. Everyone just passes it off as a gormless popcorn and explosions flick. When did that become acceptable for the Die Hard badge? Yeah, that's, that is a big crime. Die Hard, like I said, is a thinking man's action movie. This, this is just every other action movie out there. Just because Die Hard 2 rested on its laurels doesn't mean you need to, you, you could just relax and chuck out anything. What we have is a reverse Star Trek syndrome here, where mm. the even numbers are the shit ones. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. So Die Hard 5 is going to be awesome. <laughs> Yeah, John Tiernan's coming back. Please. Yeah, please. I mean, he's, he's done nothing since Basic. Did anyone see Basic? No. Samuel L. Jackson and John Travolta. Wait, wait, wait. Stay there. I think <laughs> one of them gets killed, and the whole thing is a, uh, a, a court case to work out what actually happened that led to that person's death. And it's sort of from different people's perspectives. It's, it's all right. Sounds interesting. It, it, it was better than Die Hard 4. Less. How many little winks and nods to the original Die Hards 1, 2, or indeed 3 can you spot from Die Hard 4? Crowbarred in or not? I will let Matt take this one because I don't have any springing to mind. <laughs> there, was, there was a few. I mean... None memorable, though. Right? Well, the, the only one that really stood out to me as, as being at all done anyway well was um, when um, Gabriel... I keep wanting to call him Gideon when Gabriel says to Biblical. Plane that on your tombstone it should say um, the wrong man in the wrong, uh, in the wrong place at the wrong time or something. Yeah, yeah. I've like forgotten that, that one. Which, yeah. which goes back to the first film. I'm trying to... I'm getting confused now. Uh, uh, I think he does say you're, you're a man at the wrong place at the wrong time. Awesome. Yeah, and, and that, that sort of stuck out as, as one thing. And the only one that sort of wasn't really shoehorned in. Um, and there was a few others. I mean... But really, there's no vest, which would have been the simplest one, really, yeah, wouldn't it? Yeah, but, uh, just... He is wearing it underneath his long sleeve tee, but... It's not a long sleeve tee, it's a bloody cardigan. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a bit of a jumper, isn't it, really? <laughs> it, well, it sort of looks like Drake's, only he doesn't go for the half tuck. It's it's still not the vest, though. And Actually, I've, I've got to ask about this. Do old men just look bad in a vest? Because, you know, when you reach the age of 50, as Bruce Willis clearly is um do you just look terrible in a vest i mean even if you work out and get ripped do you just have a hairy back gray (laughs) hairy back shave it or or like get yourself sort of a a slightly lightly salt and peppered chest and back wig or some just they can do wonders with makeup seriously bruce do some fucking push-ups something give us the best now we know the reasons for the divorce with demi Moore. yeah Chill, hairy back. Get him away from me. <laughs> okay, uh, winks and nods to Die Hard that I noticed. McLean on the walkie-talkie and phone. Uh, it, it bored him back to being able to be wise-cracking and cocky on the phone, which obviously he does in three and a bit less in two, but, you know, a lot in one. 
Um, Agent Johnson. He went, huh? Your name's Agent Johnson? Uh, Shit, I forgot about that. That's fine. Uh, Bonnie Bedelia's driver's <laughs> license. <laughs> Did you notice her picture in that? No. She's sort of like, it's a glamour photo for an actress. She's sort of like, it's a, it's a, it's a high up shot going down on her and her big 80s hair. And she's sort of going, uh-huh, you can't put that on a driver's license, they won't let you. <laughs> it's got to be straight from the front with your eyes facing front, totally bloody serious. You can't put your fucking uh, headshots on a driver's license. But I, I like the fact that it was in there. It kind of tied it up with Holly. Lucy McLean, obviously, with McLean residence. Lucy McLean speaking. They didn't have to put her in there, but, you know, at least they did. Uh, chap flung down the stairs, very much like um, Tony, yes. Then there's, of course, Yippee-Ki-Yay, motherfucker. <sighs> Which they don't quite have in there. As with Watchmen, I had a huge problem with Maggie Q's stupid stiletto heels. As with Watchmen, at the moment she gets flung down, she's wearing flats, so she won't twist her ankle. Because high heels, and especially stilettos, may look glamorous and feminine, but they're impractical and offer almost no advantages. The only one they do offer is the possibility of spiking a fighting opponent as long as you can balance yourself. This backfired when Maggie Q pierced the area above Bruce Willis's right eye to the point where, in the words of Len Wiesman, you could see bone. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, my point is, and all words will remain, yeah, they look great, but if you can't jump in them, don't have your character jump. It's that simple. <laughs> Yeah, at least to have it make sense. I mean, please. just wear boots, wear shoes, wear trainers, wear something you can jump in. Or, you know, just have her in stilettos but kept only on a catwalk. Or, you know, walking around New York City looking glamorous, because that's really all stiletto heels are good for. Oh, and S&M. But, uh... <laughs> that, that, that was a strange point. I mean, I'm not, hey? I'm not debating the fact that Maggie Q looks fantastic in them, but... it's just, if you have to change them to flats then they weren't the ones that the character was wearing and okay but in terms of appropriateness by far the silliest line in this movie is go ahead it's not sticking out to me it's McLean exclaims angrily when he's being bounced all over by the parkour enthusiast henchman damn hamster <laughs> clearly writer Mark Bombach has never owned a hamster I've owned seven Yes, they have Rotostack-style tunnels that they pop in and out of, but they're also fat, timid, not especially mobile, and entirely non-aggressive, unless to another male hamster. The phrase he was blushingly groping for was, motherfucking monkey. Which <laughs> leads me to... swearing. Okay, this is a little bit from Wikipedia about the PG-13 rating. In the United States, the first three Die Hard films were rated R by the MPAA. Live free or Die Hard... However, sparked controversy because it was edited to obtain a PG-13 rating. Not shot, edited to obtain a PG-13 rating. In some cases, character dialogue was cut or muted in post-production to reduce profanity. Director Len Wiesman, I just think wheezy when I hear that, commented on the rating saying, It was about three months into production and I hadn't even heard that it was a PG-13. But in the end, I was just trying to make the best Die Hard movie, not really thinking so much about what the rating would be. Bruce Willis was upset with the studio's decision, stating... I really wanted this one to live up to the promise of the first one, which I always thought was the only really good one. That's a studio decision that's becoming more and more common because they're trying to reach a broader audience. It seems almost a courageous move to give a picture an R rating these days, but we still make a pretty hardcore smash-mouth film. Willis said that he thought that viewers, unaware that this was not an R-rated film, would not suspect that, watching it, due to the level and intensity of the action and the usage of some profanity, although less than the previous films. He also said that the film was the best of the four. It's unbelievable. I just saw it last week. I personally think it's better than the first one. Hmm. Shill. Shilling. Obviously he's going to say that because he wants a lot of people to go and see his film. He's not going to say, ah, you don't want to see this shit. Because he's got a percentage of the gross, for God's sake. The funny thing is, it is pretty action-packed. Yeah, I'm not debating the action, which is definitely in there. It just makes me laugh that, you know, we can have all this pretty intense action. Mm. As long as no one says any naughty words. Yeah, as long as you don't say, motherfucker. In the United Kingdom, the film was awarded a 15 rating, the same as Die Hard with a Vengeance. The first two films in the series received an 18 certificate in cinemas. On video, Die Hard 2 was a 15 because they cut it again. The film was released with no cuts made and advice that it contains frequent action violence and one use of a strong language with reference to the line, yippee ki 
motherfucker, which, although obscured by gunfire, the BBFC claimed was clearly audible, therefore contributing towards it issuing a 15 certificate. So, like I said, they were taking none of this shit. They were going, no, he's saying motherfucker. <laughs> we're not letting... Well, they would, we're not making this a 12A, effectively, is it? Yeah, because it's inappropriate. While it may not seem that important, or even may seem more appealing, the removal of the word fuck from Die Hard is like the removal of the costume from Batman. Without that key factor to let you know that you're in a rough adult, if not mature, situation, McLean is relegated to a grumpy old man with the following repertoire of insults and expletives. Asshole, jack-off, jackass, jackhole and dickhead. Oh, and the sudden racist, misogynist and uncomfortable outburst of dead Asian hooker bitch referring to the now sadly deceased character of Mai. That wouldn't have seemed so bad in a world where McLean was able to cut loose, but the exclusion of angry language makes it more suited to Clint Eastwood's character in Gran Torino. Swearing is not big or clever, but not swearing at a time when it's wholly appropriate is a painful reminder of the harmless candy land that a PG-13 represents. Nobody nice is going to get very hurt in this film, and all the baddies will be punished. Once again, they hit the magic PG-13 certificate in order to snare the largest share of the many demographics they covet so jealously. PG turns away most adults, because apparently nothing interesting, dangerous, or provocative ever happens in them. Raiders of the Lost Ark. As a result, very few big live-action movies these days is ever released as a PG in America, specifically. If you look at a lot of PGs on your shelf, uh, like Men in Black and The Fifth Element, you check out what they were released as in America, PG-13. And kids can't get into R-rated movies, so that remains an unpopular option. Ideally, Hollywood would like only horror films like the Saw series, most popular with the older teens, to be R's. That way they can squeeze the most out of the summer blockbusters. Parents will take their kids, and that's four tickets, not two, right? Wrong. Die Hard 4 started with a budget of $110 million. It made $383 million. That's 330% gross. The R-rated Die Hard with a Vengeance cost $90 million back in 1995 and made $361 million, or 400%. A clear 70% higher than its contemporary PG-13 rated brother. Zombieland cost $23 million, made $102 million, 450%. It's an R. Kill Bill, 30 million, made 180 million, 600 percent. 300, 70 million, made 456 million, 650 percent. District 9 cost 30 million and made 210 million dollars, 700 percent. The Matrix, 63 million, made 463 million, 730 percent, all of them rated R. All of these figures dwarf the gross profit on Die Hard 4. All of them made by adults for adults. This pussy compartmentalizing of people and satisfying all aims, throwing out some homogenous glob that by virtue of its MPAA rating will take the most money, is like the prevalence of 3D, just yet another bitter misconception that Hollywood are attempting to force us to swallow under the guise of fact. Die Hard 4 should have been rated R for coarse language and strong bloody violence. It would have made more money than it did. Tell you what, if they do do five, and that is the scary thing that is on the Wikipedia article, it just yep. says next five. Yeah. Can, I, can I nominate a director? Go for Cause it. Because this, this director proved that you can have a, 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 is it a no, I think it was an R, rate a movie that's full of action and intelligence. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to Die Hard 5, Christopher Nolan. Christopher. <laughs> I mean, I, I, he's like the go-to guy whenever we're thinking, ooh, wouldn't he be good? But yeah, I mean, the, the one I thought of would actually be Michael Mann. What was the last one he did? Was it Miami? Public Enemies, which is also a bit oh, disappointing. I haven't seen that one yet. It's, uh, but then Collateral is fucking brilliant. And Heat is fucking brilliant. He is one of the best. It's just awesome. Well, it, it's it's both of those are thrillers. They have action in them, but they're thrillers. And if you bring Die Hard back to being a thriller, and you make it very serious, but also kind of... I mean, Michael Mann doesn't really do humour that well, so maybe it would be... 
less funny. But then again, I mean, you're dealing with an old McLean. Make that the focus of it. Well, yeah. He's getting too old for this shit. (laughs) He literally... (laughs) Hang on, I've heard that line before. Yes. (laughs) movie. Actually, speaking of Die Hards 5 and 6, on May the 5th, 2010, it was announced that X-Men Origins Wolverine, terrible, and the A-Team, quite good, writer Skip Woods, was in negotiations to script the fifth Die Hard movie. Bruce Willis will again return as John McClane, and Willis said that he would like to see Wiesman return, and would also like to see the story take place outside of the United States with a tentative title of... Die Hard 24-7. Hmm. But you don't, do you? You don't, you can't possibly Die Hard 24-7. That's total war. (laughs) On October 5th, 2010, Willis announced during an MTV interview that a first draft of the script was finished and that the shooting should begin in 2011. Regarding a possible Die Hard 6, Bruce Willis told Showbiz Spy, for me, I want to do Die Hard 5 and then one final Die Hard movie, Die Hard 6, before finally hanging up the white vest for good. Our advice. Rated R for language and violence, please. And not Wiesman. Yeah, lock Len Wiesman in a vault for a decade with only the works of Michael Mann for company. Bring back McTin and all, indeed, Christopher Nolan, but I think he's got a whole bunch of other projects. I think he's busy. Yeah. Uh, Keep McLean agitated. Work out and wear the damn vest. If you've gone bald, get a wig. Dye it grey. He looks like Homer Simpson in this one. You're absolutely right. I told you, that scene where he's kicked out the window, hits the vents. Just you may as well go to <laughs> I was expecting dough. Unfortunately, you won't be able to bring back Michael Kamen, but like, because he's dead. Oh, fuck. Died in 2003. <laughs> Which so is why he didn't come back for four, obviously. I'm so sorry, Michael, and, and all of his family, if you're out there. That's sad. I'm sorry to hear that. Don't bring back Michael, Marco Beltrami, though. He did a bloody awful job. There's plenty of really good score, you know, um, music composers out there that, you know, would fare better. I would say either John Murphy, who did the music for Sunshine and does a lot of uh, Danny Boyle's films, or John Powell, who did the Bourne trilogy. I'm not going to argue with John Murphy. It's the one thing I cannot slate um, any Danny Boyle movie for is the score. Yeah. Uh, have weapons and ammunition be a constant considered factor it's that we're breaking away from that now in the first Die Hard he had to ration out his bullets he had to be very careful with his shots and in this I wasn't even sure what gun he had apparently it was a six hour and a car get a charismatic actor for the villain and let him act bring back Bonnie Bedelia I know she may look rough but it worked for Indiana Jones 4 no comment. <laughs> uh, I sense the ghost of James behind me. And have more at stake than Die Hard 4. I think we have a more contained space as well. It, it doesn't have to be, but it would make it a lot less expensive if you could bring it back to being contained, make it much more like the first, bring down the budget, make it, you know, a fight for John McClane's life and something very, very personal. Because this is what I want to close on. What the hell was really going on? What was being threatened? In Die Hard, Gruber was going to blow the hostages up, including Holly McLean, and disappear with the money. In Die Hard 2, Stuart was going to blow the hostages up, including Holly McLean, and disappear with the general. In Die Hard with a Vengeance, Gruber was going to blow up some scrap metal and disappear with the money, crippling America's Federal Reserve. That one was a bit less scary, although the consequences would be more far-reaching. Holly wasn't in danger at this point. In 4... Gabriel seems to be trying to show America what would happen if their system went down by taking the system down. Then he wants to download the bank details of every American onto his hard drive and either use it as his personal piggy bank or, and this is said in hushed, fearful tones, bring everyone down to zero. This would mean that the rich would lose their stocks and bonds and savings, but the poor would see their debts relieved. A disaster for the top 1% and a life-changing act of mercy for everybody else. This maniac must be stopped before our frankly broken system is forced into re-evaluation. Fortunately, McLean shoots him and the day is saved. Only a bunch of blue-collar workers and security staff and nerds get blown up and nobody said the F word. This is a movie by committee and God, I hate it. Seriously, it is. I mean, I don't hate it. I just resent it. Yeah. It's just a bit crap, you know. It's, it's, eh, eh. Going through this all, I mean, it's, it's serviceable enough. As you said, if it, had, the right word. if it had had the rock in it and if the script had been a bit sparkier. I have one suggestion. And for if it had been obvious and clear what the villain was trying to do, because that, it just didn't seem like, are you guys scared yet? Is everybody freaking out? Yeah, I thought so. Which doesn't, it just doesn't seem to be all that, like, much of a crisis. 
The Return of Bruno is a debut album by actor Bruce Willis, released by Motown in 1987. This album is an eclectic gathering of R&B music sung by Willis, with backing musicians including Booker T. Jones, Ruth Pointer, and The Temptations. So I just wanted to make sure I included this one little uh, piece in here. Uh, it's Secret Agent Man, James Bond is back, uh, as sung by Bruce Willis in 1987, just before he did Die Hard. just sort of ends that's yeah. it I mean we would normally talk about the end of a film but it just sort of ends he shoots Gabriel I mean Gabriel holds him uh, and like holds his gun to his McLean's shoulder which is not a kill shot he's like you know if you don't play ball I'm gonna shoot you in the shoulder like point blank he's like, uh, you know why would he do that he'd hold it to his fucking temple that's what he'd do it's just the fact he's a bit of a crappy bad guy yeah he just—it's like a real oversight. And, well, wasn't he? Wasn't he sort of grinding the, the the barrel of the the pistol into a wound in his shoulder or something? Which was was he? I think that was the point. I can't remember how he got injured, but I'm sure it was something to do with that. Really? But yeah, it was, it, you wouldn't. You just hold it to his head. Yes, you would because because it's where you hold a gun. If because McLean's a very dangerous man. <laughs> you don't want to be like I might shoot you in the shoulder. Watch out. He this guy, this guy he would been, snap your neck. He should have been crippled after jumping off a plane. Yeah. Um, and being shot by fucking the most sophisticated fighter jet in the world. And so then yeah. Lucy seems to show an interest in Matthew, who I've, we've kind of forgotten about at this point, because they, they seem to not know quite what to do with him. After, after they leave Kevin Smith's place, he's like, I'm going with you. And it's like, why? <laughs> Just so you could be a hostage and be asked to enter this code. That he actually serves no purpose after this in the movie. I think he takes a bullet for um, Lucy, and that's all. Should have killed him. I, th- I think it might have made an interesting poignant ending, actually. It would made it, yeah. <laughs> it would have been some point of interest to the ending. But no, Lucy just goes, did you ask anything about me? Like, oh, no, 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 you're not seeing my daughter. Ooh. It's like the parent thing. And then you go, it cuts to the best part of the movie, which is Fortunate Son by Credence Clearwater Revival, which they have a little argument about earlier, because um, Matthew doesn't like good music. And not much of a muchness film. Oh, well. Zombies next time. Zombies next time. Yeah, next week we are talking about zombies, and it's going to be deadly serious. None of that lightsaber versus zombie, Iron Man suit versus zombie type Plants bullshit. Plants versus zombies. That's a good game. Oh, by the way, this week, uh, Plants versus Zombies, 800 points. Buy it. It's brilliant. Yes, after I've already bought it. Yes, after I've already bought it. A couple of weeks Bastards. ago. Bastards. <laughs> okay, so we will see you next week. We're talking about the Zombie Survival Guide by Max Brooks. The week after, we're doing World War Z. Bring your nerves of steel and a very serious, practical attitude. Or your Lobo. Or your Lobo, which is a sharpened shovel that almost bears more of a resemblance to a double-headed battle axe. It's Die Hard 4.0, and that title tells you that it's computer literate. Hey, guys, you know what? The 21st century computers are really it. I'm sort of thinking, Hackers came out in 1995, so that means at least 
12 years too late on the aunt computer's hip and down with the kids thing. But the plot is, this time, the whole of the Eastern Division is being brought down by cyber terrorists who have hacked into the mainframe. Oh, I have to say, the fastest connected internet provider I have ever seen in my life. I mean, I go onto mine and it's like... You haven't got connected in the New Forest, have you? No, well, we haven't got broadband, but even on, you know, I mean, I hear that broadband is very fast, but it's nothing like as fast as this guy. An email from Mike Garvey, who says, just seen Die Hard 4.0, after careful consideration, I'd have to say it is without doubt the stupidest, most moronic film in the history of cinema. (laughs) In fact, I'll include all future films in that statement. I can't conceive anyone could ever top this film for sheer silliness. Some films have come close, the Apple Mac compatible alien spaceship in Independence Day, (laughs) but nothing can top Die Hard 4, which just piles on one insanely impossible scene on top of another until it achieves a sort of dumbness nirvana. The main problem with it is, is that the dumbness isn't original. So uh, nearly all the stunts you've seen before, so you know there's the bit that's in the trailer of Capitol Building getting blown up, which kind of looks like the White House getting blown up in Independence Day. There's the bit when they shut down a whole city by messing with the traffic lights, which is kind of from the Italian job. There's a, a, also a key scene in which there's a helicopter, right, and Bruce Willis drives a car, and the car goes up a ramp, and the car hits the helicopter. Everyone's saying this is the great big, you know, money shot, fantastic, f- wonderful stunt. Well, there's a movie in the 1990s called Stone Cold with Brian Bosworth, who was an American footballer, lunk-headed American footballer with sort of, you know, short hair and a a sort of horrible cat flap thing at the back, and he drove a motorbike out of a window at a helicopter in a Craig Baxley movie back in the 1990s, so that's not original. All the lines is stuff you've heard before. We get, Bruce says things like, this time he's saving his daughter rather than his wife, because they kind of figure probably, you know, Bonnie Bedalia, it's not eye candy enough, let's get somebody young, that way it'll kind of work out. And he does the thing about, I have repeatedly asked you to call me dad, which is a line from Armageddon, you will remember. Then we get all the usual stuff that when things go bang very loudly, there's, oh, that's going to wake up the neighbor. And it's like watching sort of hits on 45 of action genre movie cliches. The other thing with it is, I mean, it's not it's not without a certain passing interest, because I quite like Bruce Willis, and he does look good running around in various states of disarray. However, the promotional item for Die Hard 4.0, which in America, incidentally, is called Live Free or Die Hard, but they kind of figure that over here in Europe, we would think that sounded far too sort of post-Iraq flag-waving. He never, in the film, actually gets to just wear the vest. But there is a promotional vest, which I've got, which says Die Hard 4.0, but he keeps his singlet on, because you know what? He's a bit old, so it's, you know, Die Hard, but wrap up nice and warm, because, you know, get your cardi on, Bruce. Die Hard. <laughs> die Hard. Do we have to? You're not thinking fourth dimensionally. You're right. have a real problem with that lately. Great Scott. This is heavy. <laughs> <laughs> Someone should need to count how many other movies Die Hard. Die Hard. <laughs> right, you, we're going to play. <laughs> Jaws 3D for the hell of it. No, Jaws 14 in 3D. <laughs> okay, you're going to hear a song now called by a band called Guys Night. It's called Die Hard, and it's uh, it's it's a song about the first three Die Hard movies. And it appears on as a DVD extra on Die Hard 4. And it's probably one of the best things on there because it is so comical. It's a loud, boisterous, rocky song about Die Hard movies with an absolutely brilliant, catchy chorus. And that chorus is... Yippee-ki-yay, motherfucker. <laughs> if you haven't got this song, it's on iTunes. It's 79p. And it's one of the best 79ps you'll ever spend. See you next week. I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Neil Taylor. And I've been Matt Ramsey. Happy trails. Remember when we first met John McClane? Argyle picked him up from the plane and took him down the Nakatomi Tower to meet with Holly. He came to get her back and to be her man, but Hans and his buddies fucked up the plan. And that's about when everything went sour at the Christmas party. And the terrorists were the worst zealots, but they were sweet when they killed Ellis.